get going this morning and, uh, hey, can y'all, can y'all just love Jesus enough to not just be real absorbed in where the time is? Is that okay? Because I'm not real absorbed in where the time is. We cushioned your seats. I mean, what else is there? So this morning is December 2nd, 2012. This year is flying by. Uh, our message this morning is called The Full Price. The Full Price. You know, I was a car salesman. I didn't choose that. The Lord chose that for me. Man has to make a living somehow. And uh, I was in Baker, Louisiana. And one thing that I found out was nobody wants to pay full price. Right? Nobody walks up and says, please, can I pay you exactly what you're asking for, for that? We're always looking for deep discounts, sales, anything that's free is best. Salvation is free in one sense, because you could never afford it. You could never earn it. But it costs you everything in another sense, because your life no longer belongs to you. In ministry, we learn to perform service to the king, whether it's rainy, snowy, hot, sick, in pain, humiliation makes no difference because he's worth whatever it takes. He paid the ultimate price for me and now my life belongs to him. And I pray to the living God that your life would belong to him as well. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is something that I want to read to you. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Before I read the next verse, you ever tried to set an old radio before they were digital? Man, you could tweak that dial and you'd move a hair and you'd be on the wrong station. It doesn't take much movement in the human heart and you are on the wrong station. This morning we're going to dial right into Jesus. We're going to do the little Jeremiah 33.3. We're going to call him up, tell him what we want, and we're going to dial in to the kingdom because the kingdom is here. Verse 3, for you died. Did you know that you're living dead man? He said, for you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Patricia's a dead woman. Eric Stevens is a dead man. You are looking at an absolute living martyr if you are looking at a Christian because we died. You know what the good news is? hard to offend a dead man. It's hard to hurt a dead man. It's hard to discourage a dead man. Has anybody ever walked through a cemetery and heard people rolling over in their graves? I mean, that's an expression, but it's never happened. If we are dead to this world and everything in it, and we are raised with Christ, then we are new, despite what you see in the mirror. The Bible declares you dead and declares you to be a life-bringing messenger. Philippians 3 says it in a little different way. This is the 10th verse. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's as if Paul knew that every time he suffered a little bit for Jesus, every time he paid a cost to be associated with Jesus, he was a little more like Jesus. Every time it hurt him just a little bit, every time he could show that his flesh was dead, he knew what it was to be raised to walk in a new life. I'm not speaking of beating yourself with a whip. 
I'm not speaking of covering yourself in burlap sacks or going to live in a monastery. I'm talking about learning to declare that your flesh and its desires are dead so that your spirit can rule you. Is there an amen in the house for that? If our flesh rules us, then we are a slave to it. And we're a slave to sin and everything that comes with it. But if our spirit rules us that has been renewed by the presence of God, then we're slaves of righteousness and everything that comes with it. Have you ever thought to yourself that this church preaches a hard word? It's okay, you can tell the truth. Only one of you. I'm going to have to preach harder. There's only one of you that thinks we preach a hard word. Booth camp. Brother moved here from another state. He had been here about a week and he said, you know, this place is kind of like a Christian boot camp. <laughs> yeah, but we turn out lives that will radically change for the gospel. Yes. Turn with me to Amos, the seventh chapter. I'm going to tell you about a hard word. A really, really hard word. Amos takes place about 765 B.C. One of the interesting things that may not just come to your mind is this is before the northern kingdom's captivity. It's before the southern kingdom's captivity. They're at the height of their complacency, the zenith of their worldly success. Their success in their own eyes, but not in God's eyes. Again, maybe slightly analogous to where we're at as a nation. You in the 7th chapter, 10th verse? Amos means burden. <clears throat> Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. I guess I should tell you that. Amaziah, what a great name. It means Yahweh is mighty, right? If your mama named you Yahweh is mighty, that's quite a mouthful. It means your life ought to display that Yahweh is mighty or Jehovah is mighty if you like. Amos' mama named him Burden. What do you think that meant? If you got to choose between Amaziah and Amos, wouldn't you choose Amaziah? Yahweh is mighty. But the man who carried the burden from God acted different than the one who simply proclaimed God is mighty. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, Bethel means house of God, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword. And Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. He was not exactly preaching a prosperity gospel, was he? Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel. Because this is the king's sanctuary. And the temple of the kingdom. The king's sanctuary. You ever heard somebody say their house belonged to the Lord? Well, what's yes. wrong with y'all this morning? Yes. You ever heard somebody say that their house belonged to the Lord? How about their car? Yes. You ever ask them to borrow it? <laughs> How'd that work out? Since it's the Lord's house, can I stay here for the summer? I mean, because the Lord said His house is a house for all nations, right? You said it was the Lord's house, so I mean, as long as we're praying and stuff, can I stay with you? It's a funny thing how men can proclaim that Yahweh is mighty. Yahweh is mighty. Yahweh is mighty. Then they build sanctuaries that they call are theirs. It's mine. It's the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of my kingdom, they said. 
Amos had an entirely different message. He said, all this belongs to God. You haven't been doing the things that He wants. I think that it's a dangerous trap to fall into that think because we bear a Christian name, because we build Christian buildings, that they're the presence of God. They might simply be a new form of idolatry. Idolatry is when you love something more than you love Jesus. Think about this. You set out to build something for the king of kings, but along the way you fell in love with what you built. We serve the same God who promises Isaac will be born. And then ask the man he was born to, to kill him. He asked him that. Can you imagine how difficult that must be? What kind of theological kung fu is going on in his mouth? Right? The Lord would never tell me to, and yet the Lord obviously did tell me to. We serve a jealous God. He will not have any rivals in our lives. Not in my life. Not in your life. If we're going to build a house for him, it's got to be his house. The best way I know, the very best way I know to make sure that it's his house is to make sure everything that's of you is cut right out of it. Well, that's easier said than done. How do you minister with the anointing of God but not have your personality in it? How do you go pray with compassion but not be driven by human emotion? How do you serve the living God with all of your heart but not have that wicked, sinful, unbelieving heart in it? It requires a constant circumcision of the heart, a narrowing of the way. It requires a crucifixion of the flesh daily. If any man would come after me, Jesus said, He must take up his cross. Look at the 14th verse. By the way, did you notice that Amaziah called Amos something? Seer? That's an old word for prophet. Do you hate people that can see into your life? When's the last time somebody said, Hey, dude, how you doing? And you said, Really pretty terrible. My face at an all-time low, and I'm going to cry when you walk out of the room. Matthew and Spence came to my house yesterday. They're like, Hey, bro, what's up? Because that's how Louisiana folks talk, right? Oh, yeah, man. And uh, I looked at him and I knew the right thing to say. What's the right thing to say? Oh, Oh, yeah, it's all all good. And I put my head on Matt's shoulder like I was a little kid. And I said, dude, I am beat up. Pray with me. There's something to be said for honesty. Amen. Amaziah and Jeroboam hated that Amos could see them like God saw them. They hated it. And did you hear what what he said? Go back to your own land and earn your bread over there. What did he see prophesying as? Simply a tool to make some money. You know, I've heard from more than one person. This is my favorite with the traveling missionary, right? And I love missionaries. Our church is a missions church. Discouraged, beat down, marriage on the rocks. But what else would I do for a living? Man, if the gospel's become a living for you, you've already lost. But I'm not talking about missionaries today. I'm talking about you. Why do we serve the Lord? Why is it that we do things for the Lord? Is it so that there's some selfish gain in it? Are there secondary gain? Or do we serve Him for the greatness of His name? Do we hate when people see into our lives? I told you it would be a hard word. Do we hate when people see into our lives accurately? Do we distance ourselves from them? Do we tell them this is not the church for you? This is not the life you should be looking at. Perhaps your skills would be better used on Dustin. Or we rent in our inner man. We say, whatever it takes. Amen. No cost is too much. No price is too high. 
Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. That's an interesting thing. What a pedigree. A shepherd and somebody who took care of sycamore fig trees. If you have a different translation here, it may say something about a dresser of sycamore fig trees. The Hebrew word here actually means to pinch and slice open figs. I got a picture of those figs somewhere back there if you can find them. I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. Now, if you're going to pierce that thing, if you're going to cut it open, there's a lot of ways you could do it. But the way the shepherds in Israel did it is they squeezed it, and when the top made a little bubble, they cut a circle around that top. And they left a gap in it. There's a reason for that. That gap in it allowed room for expansion. allowed room for growth. It allowed room for the fig inside to begin to break out. And then slowly, that inner man, the center of that fig, pierced that outer flesh. And it began to tear it away, and that's how you knew that it was right. Oh my goodness, if we could learn to circumcise our hearts. Something of the inner man would begin to show on the outside. And the more fruit that it bore, and the stronger that it got, it would begin to knock away this shell, this hard outer exterior and we begin to bear the fruit of God. Sycamore fig trees are not particularly good trees, but they're trees that grow in Israel. They're not like your fig tree. You can't walk up to it and it just has fruit on it. It takes a circumcision of the fruit to get any fig tree. God called the man with a piercing word that was used to bringing fruit because he would strike at the heart of a matter. Amos had among the hardest words. Look at the fifth chapter, 10th verse. Can you imagine being told this in church? Of course you can. You're about to be. You hate the one who reproves you in court and despise him who tells you the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. Amos was a national prophet. If he were living today, what would he say to this country that is known around the world as a Christian nation? Which city can you not go into and find the poor crushed? Which place can you not go and find lavish luxury right next to great need? Not to mention the other nations of the world. Lee Greenwood sang a song, Proud to be American. Or at least I know I'm free, right? Never, I mean, you can probably hear it in your mind when I begin to say that. I'm proud to be of the kingdom of God. Amen. I'm proud that my citizenship is from a different kingdom. Jesus. I don't hate America. I love America. But if we think we can stand back and invoke the blessings of God on us simply because we've invoked them, we are as wrong as Israel was. I'm not going to read it to you, but in the fourth chapter, he said, if you repent and do this and this, then I'll actually be as close to you as you proclaim that I am. Wow. Wow. Amos might be a book that we ought to read. He prophesied about a famine that would come. It was not a famine of food or water. It was a famine of hearing God's voice. Instead, people were entertained by their own imaginations. 
Maybe for $19.99, you could buy any book on any topic and you no longer needed to hear from the Lord yourself. Look at the 21st verse of the 5th chapter. Then we're going to move on to better things. God formed the nation Israel, yeah? Yes. God, God chose the nation Israel, yes? Yes. He redeemed the nation Israel, yes? Yes. Theirs are the covenants and the patriarchs, and from them is the human ancestry of Christ's race, yes? Yes. Listen to what God said about His people. And if you think He wouldn't say it to you, then you need to explain what's changed in God's character. I hate... I despise, this is the 21st verse, your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Who told them to have the religious feast? Who told them to have the assemblies? God did. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Guys, it's said that an ancient Israelite tithed something like 60% of his income by the time you add it all up. And God would have no regard for it. The 23rd verse, Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. No regard for the worship. But justice will roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. If we're going to be blessed, friends, it's not our religious assemblies that will do it. It's not our powerful worship that will do it. If we're going to be blessed, it's when we get in the flow of the kingdom of God. It's when we begin to turn the eyes of our heart towards the same thing that God's eyes are on. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Is this what the church's eyes are on? The poor. Is this where we're at? Maybe we need to adjust. You know, Jesus said if a man's eye was bad, his whole body was full of darkness, didn't he? In Hebrew, this is called your ayin tovah. It doesn't speak of just your eyeball. It speaks of having a good eye, being able to see the intentions of God's heart. And if your eye is good, your life is full of goodness. We need to learn to look at what God looks at because He's interested in rescuing lives. He's interested in setting people free. How dare we sit on our salvation while the world goes to hell? How dare we stand back and pray for each other to get knocked down while there's a whole world out there that needs to feel the ravaging power of God's Amen. Spirit. Amen. We cannot hide in, a, in an aquarium when there's an ocean of humanity. Amen. Many of you are venturing out. You're beginning to stretch out your wings and see not only what you're capable of, but what the anointing of the living God inside you is capable of. And it's a dangerous thing to the enemy. For the first time in our lives, we may actually be threatening the gates of hell. And I like it. Amen. I like it a lot. Jesus. We were born for contention with the enemy. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy His work. And His work is all around. We just need eyes to identify it. And we need a heart that will move away from comfort and into sacrifice. Anybody like to be called a cow? <laughs> I never forget in Romania, every evening the cows came home. We learned what that expression meant. They came home like clockwork. They'd say, man, you can sit outside till the cows come home. They actually do. Now, ladies, you're going to get mad at this. It's not me. I'm not Romanian. 
I'm an American and my citizenship is in the kingdom of God. But the old farmers sit out there and they drink balinka. It's uh, uh, a spirited dish. Fermented dish, that's what I was trying to say. It's not Nazarite material. And I'm standing with the farmers. And here come the cows. They kind of trot in, right? And they're dairy cows. So, I mean, they're just a whole lot of movement. The guy said something in Romanese, and I said, well, what was that? Because I thought I recognized the word. Evening, ladies. What he said. Yeah, all the guys are laughing in this room. His wife was a long, long ways away when he said it. I thought, what a degrading, terrible thing to say, right? Look at Amos, the fourth chapter, first verse. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husband, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaks in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. God dared them to continue with their religious contempt. Continue to say Jehovah is mighty. Continue to bring me offerings. Continue to do these things. But ignore what my heart is on. I dare you, you bunch of cows. <laughs> I got a picture of a person I used to know sitting at a table going, <laughs> bring me a mimosa. <laughs> right? I mean, she was a champion at drinking. And when it wasn't that, it was scotch. Right? That's such an obvious thing. We all see a drunk and we know something's wrong, right? He's talking to church people. And what is God so mad about that he's calling people cows? They're ignoring the sacrifice that is before them. Why do you pass by somebody on the road? Let's put ourselves into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why did the people pass him by? Because it cost them something to stop. It cost them time. It cost them inconvenience. It cost them money. It may be a threat to their life. But of course, we are dead men. Amen. We are dead men. We've already given up everything. Or have we? See, if you had nothing left to lose, if you had not a thing that you were concerned about except pleasing Jesus, what would our lives really look like? Oh, man, is that dangerous. When you care nothing for your life or the things of this world, did you know that 1 John said when we love the things of the world, it's warfare to God? My, my. Who remembers what a Lamborghini Contosh is? Right, they made these from 1974 to 1990. <laughs> Man, when I was a kid, that was, that, I had one of those on my wall. I don't know why, there wouldn't be nobody that I knew that could ever own one. But we had one on our... Lamborghini's a man's name. Y'all know that, huh? It's an Italian name. But in Northwest Italy, when this thing first hit the road in 74, a journalist spilled his coffee on himself. At least that's how the propaganda goes. And he said, Huntash, which apparently is Northwest Italian dialect for holy cow. If God's going to call me a cow, 
I want to be a cow that's worth something, my friends. If God himself is going to refer to a human being as a cow, then what kind of cow do you want to be? The kind that sits back and says, Hubby, give me another mimosa? Oh, because there are some holy cows in the Bible. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 6. We probably should have called this message, When It's Okay to Be a Cow. In 1 Samuel 6, here comes the first verse. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. Any Bible scholars want to say why they wanted to send it back to its place? Well, they set it up in the temple of Dagon, and Dagon fell over, and they said, well, how'd that happen? And they set Dagon back up, and Dagon fell over and broke off his head and his hands. So they sent it to another Philistine town, then another, then another, to five total towns. And everywhere they sent the ark, rats and tumors abounded. And the scripture says that God's hand was not just heavy upon the Philistines, it was heavy upon the Philistines' gods. So these people that are worshiping demons, the demons started talking to the people saying, <clears throat> this guy's kicking our butt. Would you uh, do something about this? Send it away anywhere. They pulled together diviners. You know, it's saying something when the enemy is begging you to leave the playing field. Yes. I know what it's like to get beat by 67 points on homecoming. Yeah, wasn't that amazing, Matthew? 67 points on homecoming and then get to, to run wind sprints. For each point we lost by, in front of the, the hometown crowd, right? Just a really sweet, special thing, isn't it? And as badly as we were beaten, we did not look at the other team and say, would you please just leave now? Just, just go, right? Humiliated and beaten, but not beaten so bad that you begged the enemy to leave. God's hand was so heavy upon the enemy that he's actually asking God's people to, to, to take God's presence back. Go somewhere else. I believe that the Lord can turn up the heat in this place. That He can turn up the heat in this city to the point where the devil will beg you to leave or He will leave. I think that this Project Exodus cry, that this pro-life rally that we do, this feeding the homeless, whatever it might be, submission ministries, I think that God can use ordinary men to the extent that the devil will run from you or beg you to make a treaty with Him. Well, I'm in the no ceasefire zone. You know why? I'm already dead. Amen. There's nobody left to negotiate with. He's going to have to talk to Christ. I'm hidden in Him. He didn't have access to me. You know, I just thought about it. People love a lot of things, don't they? I mean, they love football. I love beer. I love their families or fishing or hunting. They love going to church. Dead men don't have a lot of passions, do they? You can't walk by a graveyard and entice the people with money. You can't walk by a graveyard and entice the people with a short dress or a new pair of boots because they're dead. What would happen if we really died in the things of this world? You wouldn't be bribable. You wouldn't be seducible. You wouldn't be liable to the enemy. You'd be so full of God's power that nothing could dissuade you. Maybe this is why Paul's own friends could prophesy to him not to go. They could beg him not to go. 
And he said, man, why are you trying to break my heart? I'm ready to go die. He was racing for his destiny. Not just to give his life away, to bring the gospel that you now know. Amen. Come on, it came on the back of somebody's sacrifice. So the Philistines have got their diviners together, right? What verse were we at? Oh, verse 3. They answered, if you return the ark of God of Israel, the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means, send a guilt offering to it. Do you mean that even the lost know not to send away, not to be in God's presence with nothing in your hand? Even lost people know that. <laughs> Exodus 23, 15. Exodus 34, 20. said, do not appear before the Lord empty-handed. You know why? It was with great sacrifice that His presence showed up. The greatest of sacrifice. And when we show up and it costs us nothing, when we show up and it's not difficult at all, when it doesn't hurt at all, it's not hard at all, we're not reciprocating in any way with the love that He's shown us. Come on now. Let's picture that Brother Steve is at the bottom of a mountain. And you're at the top of a mountain. You gonna make him climb all the way to the top to say hello, or are you gonna see him coming from a distance and meet him? This is why the Bible says, "Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you." It's not a works-based gospel; it is a heart issue. Yeah, if true. we love him, we want to hurt for him. We want to strain for his service. We want to do whatever it takes. And you know what? He gives you everything anyway. I saw. An example the other day is a guy walks in and says, Dude, you're hungry? To a stranger. Can you imagine that? Dude, you're hungry? Well, not really. Look, I brought hot donuts. You getting hungry now? <laughs> My mouth just watered a little bit. <laughs> so Nolan begins to eat those donuts. He's about five deep now, right? Show him your belly, Nolan. <laughs> about five deep now. And on my way out the door, I said, Hey, uh-uh. Could I take one of those donuts? Could I could I, I have one? Nolan looks at me and says, Well, you know I am kinda of hungry. Uh, you know, I was thinking I was gonna bring this home. Uh, my my family, they need these donuts. What am I thinking, friends? What am I thinking? Come on, speak to me. You're in church. Not true. How do you get the donuts? What if we weren't talking about donuts? What if, what if we were talking about everything in your life, including your finances? Who gave you what you have? Mm, but we have the audacity to look at him and say, like, you know, I, I was thinking of hanging on to this. I needed to protect my family. My family needs this. The gospel is paved. The roads of the gospel are paved with sacrifice. That's the only way it's done. Somebody's sacrifice brought it to you, and it'll take your sacrifice to bring it to somebody else. Even the heathen knew not to send God's presence to another land without making some kind of offering. But in church, uh, we can come just eat the free food, breathe up the free air, get entertained with the latest message, and move on. I don't think it's supposed to work that way. And you know what? There are lives that depend on what we do. Whose life was touched by Jesus? It came at a cost to somebody. It came at a cost to somebody. I want to encourage you to ask the living God in what way you can participate in the cost of getting the gospel forward. 
I don't want your money. I want your lives. I want your lives. We cannot sleep late every Saturday. We cannot go out every Friday night for a date. We cannot spend our lives on our pleasures while they die all around us. We can't do it. Amen. If it costs you something, if Steve did climb that entire mountain just to see me, boy, I know he valued that time with me. Huh? When it costs you something to bring the gospel to somebody, they know that you value them. That's what makes missions so special. And there's a mission right here in our own city. They answered, if you return the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats. Because that's what God wants is tumors and rats, right? <laughs> According to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers, make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. Did God want rats and tumors? No, but he wanted acknowledgement that their sin caused his hand to be against them. He wanted acknowledgement that his ways are right. In the Bible, gold means divinity. He wanted acknowledgement that these rats and tumors were breaking out among them because his hand was against them for not serving him. He wanted acknowledgement of their sin. God doesn't want your sin. He doesn't want your rats. He doesn't want your tumors. He simply wants you to say, Lord, you're right in your judgment against me. And it's grace that you saved me. And because of that, I owe you my life. Amen. Anyway, anyhow, anytime, I'm yours. And not be a liar when you say it. Have you ever done this for the latest cause? I don't know what, what we... Let's just say we're going to save unicorns today, right? My heart's bleeding for the unicorn. <laughs> Every time a TV's turned on, there's a new unicorn with a, you know, twitch. $29, so save a unicorn. At Starbucks, maybe you can give an extra quarter off of your venti mocha for, for a unicorn. But then it rains the day of the unicorn rally, and the crowd is cut in half. <laughs> We're a people of convenience, friends, and we have to learn to be a people of sacrifice. The kingdom is about sacrifice. It's about a bloody sacrifice. And you said, but I thought Jesus was all the sacrifice. He told you to carry your cross. He put you in right standing with His Father so that you could go stand in His stead and fill up in your flesh what is lacking in regard to sacrifice to reach the rest of the world. And men have done it for centuries before us. That's how you have the book you have. The men who printed this book in English were burned on their printing presses. The Bible was called the pest. It was illegal in Italy until 1869. It was warred against, fought against. The first preachers of righteousness in the English language were set on fire at the stake for telling you the truth. And we don't want to cross the street on a rainy day. I don't want to shame any of us. I want to tell you that there's a way to be a holy cat. If God's going to call us a cow, I want to be a holy cow. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? 
Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. What a strange request. Hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on a cart in the chest beside the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemeth, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it is not his hand that has struck us and it happened to us by chance. <laughs> There's a man that stood against this ministry recently. He threatened to throw a family that we love out of their home. They had never not paid on time. They had never not abided by the tenets of their lease. We had never not paid him on time, not abided by the tenets of our lease. Without warning, without a, a written notice, without anything, because he was upset about the placement of a pile of wood, he threatened an entire family and the work of God. All of his investment properties burned down the next week. That's uncomfortable for Christian theology, I know that. I didn't burn his investment properties down. Who do you think he called to rewire the property? Who do you think he called to help him rebuild it? A pastor from this church. I said, oh my goodness, we have an opportunity. Sir, which God did you serve? Well, all gods are pretty much the same. But yours doesn't look to be doing so good for you. Your investment's all just burned up. By the way, you remember last week when you threatened me and the work of God? You think maybe you're suffering loss because God's trying to get your attention? No, no, my God wouldn't do that. I'm curious, where are you from? Oh, you're the place with 12 national gods. How's he been doing for your nation? What do you mean your God wouldn't do that? Oh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Maybe it was just by chance it happened. Maybe so. Or maybe God's hand is heavy on those that attack his anointed. Maybe his hand is heavy on those that threaten his work. I don't want to be in that number. I don't. It's a serious thing to stand against God's will. And he's full of mercy. He's full of grace. I, he's so lavished it upon us. But he's not a fool. And I won't mock him. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. What kind of cows do we want to be? Holy cows. A holy cow, friends, is one that had something to leave behind. He had calves. And oh my goodness, was it hard to see those calves pinned up. Anybody ever had to leave friends or family? Well, I can feel it in the back of the room, huh? <laughs> Anybody ever had to leave their hometown for Jesus? Leave their work for Jesus? Leave something difficult for Jesus? They pinned up those calves, and then what did they do? They hitched themselves to the call of God. Tied, yoked, inseparable, no looking back. Put my hand to the plow. What happened next? So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with its chest containing the gold wraps and the models of the tumors, they took an offering that said, Lord, all of your judgments are right. They are right. 
Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemeth, keeping on the road, lowing all of the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. A holy cow was one that ties himself to the purposes of God, that has a sacrifice that he's leaving behind. I've left my dreams, my visions, my plan for my life behind. I've hooked myself to the work of God, and I am taking the gospel where he has told me to take it. With one message, all the judgments of God are right. I won't turn to the left. I won't turn to the right. But I will low all of the way. I once thought that was negative. In fact, a brother in the church was sharing with me a sermon that a, a brother preached, and it, it, it was good, about whining the whole way while you're sad. But it occurred to me, what else does a cow do? Right? What, what's a cow supposed to do? Lowing may not be pretty, but it's all he's got. This was a holy cow. He took the work of the Lord, and he went straight where he was supposed to go. He never turned to the left. He never turned to the right. There was sacrifice in what he left and sacrifice in where he was going. And he lowed all of the way. If the devil can't keep you in your hometown, if he can't keep you where it's comfortable, if you're willing to pin up your dreams and take off after his, he'll say, make your attachment to these things temporary. But the living God says, yoke yourself to it. If he can't keep you from yoking yourself to the calling and heading out, he'll say, look, stop along the way somewhere. You know, I mean, this path is hard on your feet. It's difficult. But we say, no, we won't turn to the right or to the left. He says, okay, if you're going to leave something behind, if you're going to go out where God told you to go, and if you're going to go straight there, do it quietly so that nobody notices. I believe in a bold, obnoxious love. I believe in the kind of love that nobody can miss. That walks into a nursing home and kisses mama because you love her and don't care what anybody thinks. I believe in the kind of bold faith that walks into a convenience store and everybody recognizes you because you spoke to everybody there last time you were there and loved them. These cows load all of the way. Anybody read ahead and see what happens to them? Then the cows went straight up towards Bethshemeth, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Bethshemeth. I want to tell you that the people of the world will watch your life. They will look to see whether you stay on the path with God, whether there's cost in it for you, or whether it's the easy way. They will watch you to the end because you provide for them the excuse or the conviction. One or the other. Now the people of Bethshemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark of God, they rejoiced. Praise God! The presence of God is here. Then, of course, they sacrificed those cows and used the wood of the cart as a burnt offering. Oh, my goodness saints. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Bethshemeth, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood and the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The way that the Bible says it comes from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You want life to be at work in them? You want the power of God to break out in them? It comes through our sacrifice. There is no other way. 
This has led great men of God to cross the continent of Africa. It has led people to liberate captives. It has led them to go where there was no water and no food and no safety and no shelter with the power of God. And we say, oh, well, it all worked out for them in the end. They didn't know that up front. I read you about Stanley Albert Dale. They shot him with an arrow and he pulled it out and kept moving. And they shot him with another arrow and he pulled it out and he kept moving. The gospel literally cost him his life and took about 120 arrows. <laughs> that was the cost of that whole basin, that whole tribe, salvation. He said, but Jesus paid the ultimate price. He calls you to pay that price. He calls you to join in the fellowship of His suffering. He paid it so you could get right. And now you go out and your life is in His service. He doesn't ask you to do anything He didn't do Himself. He doesn't ask you to sacrifice in any way that He didn't sacrifice Himself. He simply tells you up front, if you want to hang on to your life, you've already lost. But if you'll lose your life, you're going to find something that is liberating unseducible, untaintable, full of unadulterated power. You'll find the heart of God, it's a reckless abandonment of yourself. The heart of God is a reckless abandonment of yourself in pursuit of them. Amen. I love that in our church I'm getting phone calls about are there stickers we can put on tracks. I love that we're getting phone calls that said, I found three more people don't have a house. Is there somewhere they can live? I love that people are calling and saying, hey, how... What's the best way to feed 100 people? How do you do that? Because this means we're starting to forget about the cost. We're starting to forget about ourselves and we're starting to care about them. That is the heart of the gospel. That's why we're going to build out over there. It's not so we can have a pretty sanctuary. It's because if you will go get them with that heart, God will bring them. That's why. Yeah. That's why we're going to add a pastor. It's not so that somebody can be comforted. It's so somebody can share in the sacrifice. Because they need liberation. They need what you've already been given. And if they need what you've been given, then you have what they need. If they need what you've been given, then you have what they need. I, for one, don't want to withhold it. Death at work in us. Life at work in you. You show me a great revival and I will show you men that we're in great distress. There's a guy named Frank Bartlett. He's a journalist. Fell in love with the Lord. He wrote about Azusa Street. A relative of some of the men there. Just in the journey from where he lived to where Azusa Street was happening, he lost a couple of his children. It always costs something to bring a move of God. They say that the wheels of revival are greased with the blood of the martyrs. Jesus paid the cost. But we share in that cost with our lives. Do I have time for more preaching? Are you done? It's funny the things that the church is obsessed with. We're obsessed with comfort, and God afflicts every comfortable man. He does. He afflicts every comfortable man. Anytime in my life I've ever gotten to a place where I thought maybe it's coast, his hand was heavy on me like the Philistines. He called me to work. He called me to fight. He called me to take it to the enemy, not lay back in luxury. Amen. 
Oh, Jesus, he called you to the same thing. Turn with me to Genesis 23. Yeah, I feel like praying. If you don't pray in tongues and that offends you, it's okay. You can pray in tongues and then you won't be offended anymore. <laughs> Genesis 23. What's your title say? Oh, my goodness. The first guy that ever held his hand while his wife died was a man named Gerald Williams. And I'd prayed for a son to get filled with the Holy Ghost. And I'd seen him baptized. And his wife was barren. And when we prayed for her, she started spitting out kids. And now, Gerald, who has just been born again, filled with the Holy Ghost, same time Steve was. Parking lot, a whistle stop in Denham Springs, Louisiana. But some crazy kid just dared to believe God could use anybody. So we prayed for him. About six months later, Gerald's whole life had changed. He watched nothing but Bible teaching on TV, right? That was a big change because Gerald was a big guy and he liked to sit in a big chair and watch a big TV. He rode a big lawnmower, drove a big truck. His nickname was Tank. That was Gerald. And this big guy was reduced to tears, reduced to pain, because his wife of many decades died. Christians experience loss. It's very difficult, but if anybody tells you otherwise, they're, they're in denial. Christians experience that. Every New Testament believer died at some point. It happened. We had 23 people crammed in that ICU. Angie, you know that that's not allowed. We didn't care. Were they going to do arrest us all? I had her hand in my hand and Gerald's hand in the other, and I was staring at their son, who I'd proclaimed the power of the gospel to. And she did not get healed. That is such a difficult time. And people have such trite little answers, you know. They want to blame somebody. This time is like that in Abram's life. Listen to this. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. To us, that's a line in a book, but if you've ever been there, it's not a line in a book is the most gut-wrenching thing a human being can experience. It breaks you up in ways that hard to explain, even though he knows she's in the presence of the Lord. You know where he's not standing? Or she's not standing? Next to him. 127 years is a long time to spend. How do you think Abraham felt? Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife. And spoke to the Hittites. <laughs> I know what it's like to preach to unbelievers at my father's own funeral. A donkey of a man approached the pulpit, wanted to speak with me in private with clenched fist. It's funny, I've forgotten how audacious this was until just the other day. Hero and Hutchinson circled the office, looking in. Zeke peeked his head by. Everybody knew something was wrong. He wanted to fight at my father's funeral. You don't get everything you want. I refused that day. I told him to come back tomorrow. 
Abraham's just stood up from beside his dead wife. And he's standing in the presence of unbelievers. How we handle our sacrifice, how we handle our difficult times is everything. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for the burial site here so I can bury my dead. Oh my goodness. In the midst of his grief, who does he have to ask? The unbelievers he's going to live among. The Hittites replied, Abraham, to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. That word mighty prince is Elohim Nasad. It means so much more than mighty prince. Elohim is the same word for God throughout Genesis. Nasai is a prince of princes. They quite literally said to him, Abraham, you are a God prince among us. The lost didn't understand his relationship to the Lord, but they knew that the presence of God was upon him because in the midst of his sacrifice, in the midst of his most difficult time, they could see something of the Lord on him. And they said so. They called him Elohim Nasai. Elohim was God. Nasai is prince. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave at Machpelah. Tell me something. Did Abraham just not hear so good? They offered to give it to him. He won't take it. Because his wife was worthy of the cost. We're always looking for an easy way to build a ministry, an easy way to do an outreach, an easy way to meet people's needs, and I'm telling you, Jesus is worth doing it the hard way. I told one man of God how long I'd been laboring in this work. He said, so you persevere. <laughs> well, my king is worth it. He didn't promise me immediate success, and if I had immediate success, I wouldn't have handled it well. It turns out that perseverance develops character and character hope. It turns out that this is how Christ is formed in us. When you do what is difficult, and as Psalm 16 says, keep your vow when it hurts. This is something the Christian world knows little of. When it's hard, we simply say God changed his mind, you know. Charismatics are the worst. We are the worst in the world about claiming God as schizophrenic. Friends, if he told you something on Monday, he did not change his mind on Friday because it was raining. Amen. The fact that there's some pain in the offering adds to his glory. Amen. And I encourage you to meet that cost. Yeah. You know why? The Hittites are watching. They said, hey, uh, Abram, you can have it. You can have the land. You can have everything on it. He said, no, I will, I will pay the full price. What is money between you and me? But since you've asked, you know, how's 400 shekels sound? Yeah. Oh, that is a staggering price. Yeah. They went from giving it to him to charging him almost what the temple site would cost a thousand years into the future. I bought a 1980 Ford pickup. But when I bought it, it was 1993. And it still had in the glove box the original sales contract. 
the year that it was purchased, it was $5,200. The year that I obtained it, a new pickup just like it would have been $20,000. Do things go up over time, friends, as their inflation? The temple site cost David 400 shekels. I'm sorry, 600 shekels. Abram just paid 400 shekels for just a grain. The cost was extraordinary. But that's the price of being a God prince among heathens. You pay an extraordinary price so that they might see something that's different about you. We can't give up when it's hard. You're ordinary if you do that. You can't back away when it's difficult. You're ordinary if you do that. You were called to be extraordinary. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 21. Let's talk about David while we're on the subject. Are y'all tired? First Chronicles 21. You know this story. Satan rises against David. He incites David to take a census in Israel. Why is it wrong to take a census? Taking a census is a little bit like saying, you know, I need to see whether or not I have what it takes to do what God's called. And what God is telling you is it's going to take all you have. Don't worry about counting. Are you hearing me? Do I have enough dollars? Well, how many ever you have, that is what it is going to take. Because that's what faith is. Pastor, why did you spend $9,000 in Africa? Because I didn't have 10000 That's why. It's going to take whatever you have. I can assure you, whatever God calls you to do, you do not have enough. But whatever you have multiplies at His touch. It does. You bring Him five loaves and two fishes. Why? Because it's all you have. And you get 12 basketfuls left over. The purpose is not to gain more than you gave. That's not the purpose. The purpose is He's worth all you have. And we hold back and hold back and hold back and hold back. Then He's not really Lord. If we can't do what he says, he is not Lord. Of course, if we can do what he says, then it proves he's Lord. Eat chocolate ice cream. I told you to do it. You do it. What does that prove? It might prove you like chocolate ice cream. Eat broccoli sprouts. Eat garbanzo beans, red beans. Eat dirt. There we go. I found something nobody likes. You eat dirt. That's obedience. It means you must really love me. You must really trust me. You must really care. I'm saying let's quit believing for the easy. Let's venture out into the deep water. Let's not pray that God split eyedroppers. Let's pray that he split red seas and put our lives on the line. You want a mighty move of God, you got to get out in the deep water, friends. you got to risk it all. God never rolls the dice and hedges his bets. He commits fully or he doesn't commit at all. He loves the heart that is fully committed to him. A famine breaks out. That's not quite right. Actually, a prophet shows up and says, David, would you like a famine? Would you like to be handed over to your enemy? Or would you like the sword of the Lord? You ever had three choices and all of them were bad? 
I have. I've been in that situation where everywhere I looked, it was going to cost more than I wanted to pay. David thought about it, and he said, no, not a famine. No, don't hand me over to my enemies. Whatever happens to me, let it happen to me because I have fallen into the hands of the Lord. I'll take the Lord's sword over my enemies any day. Come on, saints. We're hedging our bets against famine. We're tidying our houses up trying to make sure that no enemy gets in. I'd whole lot rather just fall into the hands of the Lord. Verse 13, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is very great. Is God's mercy great? Yes. Is His mercy great? Yes. Do you want to be like God? How can we show people no mercy? How can we show them no forgiveness? How can we give them no aid when God's given us so much aid? Turn with me to verse 20. While Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons were with him and hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have this site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at... The full price. He didn't haggle. He didn't want a discount. He wasn't looking for a sale. You know why? He caused the plague. He caused the plague so he was not ashamed to pay whatever cost it took to get the plague to stop. There's a revelation that we need. We absolve ourselves from sin by saying, well, we've all sinned. <laughs> saying we've all sinned doesn't absolve you of sin. It proves your sin. It feels better to say we've all sinned, though. Wouldn't you rather say we've all sinned than I sin? And we like to put a past tense on it. We like to say, I sinned. When? Long, long time ago, a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> When you know what your sin cost Jesus. When you know that, you stop asking what obedience is going to cost you. Did you hear me? That needs to settle in. When you know what your sin cost God, you stop asking what obedience is going to cost you. You stop it. Verse 24. But David replied to Aruna. No, I insist on paying full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering. What's that last phrase? I will not bring a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. If we give out of our comfort, we tip God. If we never move out of our comfort for His benefit, for His kingdom, then we're bringing him sacrifices that cost nothing and the prophet Amos will show up in our nation and call us cows and not holy cows. But when you begin to move in a way that it hurts, when your knees are shaking together because you're scared and you do it anyway, this is an offering worthy of the Lord. When you do it 
Because you believe he said it, even though everything in you is screaming, pick someone else. This is an offering worthy of the Lord. He doesn't care whether you have five fish or two fish or five loaves and two fish. He doesn't care. He's going to ask you for all you have. Because that proves he's the Lord. He's going to ask you to put it all on the line. Because that proves he's the Lord. I'm not preaching to you something that I don't live. I mean, if you don't know me well enough, you should get to. When we believed that there's a chance for martyrdom, we rushed into 22 countries that year. Because I'm anxious to give him all I have. But you know what? Not up to me. It's up to him. He gets to choose that. Amen. You don't even get to choose the depth of your sacrifice. You just get to choose whether or not you're going to be obedient. And he kind of smiles and says, you already promised me your life, son. We're living dead men now. That's right. Living dead men. Of course, the other people are dead men that are living. Oh, they look alive. They got heartbeats everywhere except in their spirit. You can strike down this body and my spirit's going to live with God forever. And I so believe that that I don't much care what happens to this body. Oh, we have the opportunity to be so dangerous. We do. We have the opportunity to have nothing to lose. When I was a kid, Mike Tyson was everything. He knocked people out before the fight seemed to start. I went to the Omni Center in Houston, and he wasn't fighting there, but we were watching on big screens in those days. And uh, the guy I was with sent me to get beer and nachos, and it was a problem because I wasn't old enough to buy beer. So we went on and on and on and on, and uh, you know, I think I was probably 11 or something like that. And I finally came back with what he requested. And the fight was over. He knocked out Sphinx in 30 seconds or something like that. So the talk started in the junior high circles for a million dollars to step in the ring with Tyson. You know, would you take one punch from Tyson for ten thousand dollars? Right? You know what every little kid said? Of course. We had no reputation to lose. We had no, if you survived it, you were rich, we thought. <laughs> of course, a little kid knows nothing of consequence, does it? As we get older, we learn how to evaluate our risk and do risk assessment. But you're supposed to be like a child to enter the kingdom, aren't you? Not an insurance adjuster with actuary tables. <clears throat> We are so good at evaluating and eliminating risk and cost and making sure that we only obey God to the extent that, you know, it doesn't in any way really affect us. I'm saying go to the bone. That's where you find out whether or not there's life in this thing or not. I don't think we had a mission trip this year that didn't threaten the very existence of the church. Now, with better planning, we're going to try to figure that out. I bet it will always threaten the very existence of the church. <laughs> Mathematically, it's probably not possible to bring Matthew on board, build out a sanctuary, and do more missions. But I serve a God who 
can take five loaves and two fishes and have 12 baskets left over. I'm going to give him what I've got. Trust him for the rest. Remember our donuts, friends? Did he give you a box of donuts and you're hanging on to them? Eating so many that you're swollen? About to make yourself sick, but you just cannot give them back because what happens if I don't have donuts tomorrow? I doubt that's going to get a well done, my good and faithful servant. Verse 24, but David replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on Yahweh and Yahweh answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. Our God loves an offering that costs something. I know it'll shock you former Baptists to hear this. But God said, if you're going to bring me a drink offering, don't you dare bring me one that's not fermented. I know, I saw some of your faces go, what? <laughs> Take out a concordance, look up the word fermented. I promise it's there. It's the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's the 14th chapter, but you'll have to find it yourself. You can. I, is it not written? <laughs> so why on earth would God do that? Well, because you had to plant the grapes. You had to grow the grapes. You had to squeeze the grapes. You had to strain out the flesh of the grapes. Then you had to age it. You had to watch it. You had to make sure it didn't get toxic, but it had just the right amount of fermentation, and, and it was an awful lot of effort. And he liked that. He liked that. Our God likes it when you have some effort in it. And our theology is so twisted this that we've called that a works-based gospel. That's retarded beyond belief. It would be works if that saved you. It's grace that saved you. Now I give him my work as a labor of love. And I love him. I'm going to work for him until I die. That's this last verse here. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. <laughs> You want to stop the devourer? Obey God until it hurts. You want to stop the hemorrhaging in your household? Obey God until it hurts. You want to do something that moves heaven? Obey God until it hurts. Keep your vows even when it hurts. By my count, I have six more minutes. Who knows whether I can count right. Can y'all get one more scripture in here or would you rather me preach it Wednesday? I'm not preaching Wednesday. Somebody else is preaching Wednesday. That means we have to do it today. Turn to Luke 19. My wife says sometimes I miss the opportunity to close. With enough practice, I'll eventually get there. What did Amos do for a living? He was a shepherd and he did what with fig trees, Brandon. Yeah, he was a dresser of figs. He circumcised them. I think we are to finish where we started. Zacchaeus means pure. Funny little story. Jesus entered Jericho. Jericho always symbolizes the world, but let's just say he entered Houston. Jesus entered Houston and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Hi, I'm pure. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. There's no question Zacchaeus is pure. That's what his name means. He's a pure tax collector. 
and the pure are wealthy. <laughs> Matthew 19 said it was hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The scripture declares that if someone will not repent, you treat them like a tax collector or a publican. Zacchaeus was a pure sinner. That's what he was. A pure sinner. Is there another kind? Pure means unmixed with any other matter. I know we like to pretend we were pretty good people when Jesus found us, but I'm going to tell you, you were a pure sinner, incapable of doing anything right, a monstrous enemy of God. That's the condition he found you, just like Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not. Yet for going to a restaurant and come up just a little short with the tab, what an embarrassing feeling. I mean, it creeps up your spine, man. You ever sit there and you're kind of going around the table catching what they order, and you're, I mean, all of a sudden it hit you. We might have to, might have to wash dishes to leave, but you don't want to tell them why. Well, there's pride there. We came up short with God. We didn't have what it takes. We couldn't see Him. We couldn't stand eye to eye with Him. We couldn't understand Him. We did not have what it takes. So what did He provide? So He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree. Sycamore fig trees do not produce good fruit unless, of course, they're circumcised. Something has to happen. Has to pierce us. Has to cut away a little bit of that outer jacket so that fruit can be revealed. And once that inner man learns to flex that faith muscle, once that inner man learns to exert its voice, suddenly the shell begins to fall off and we are all together what the king is looking for. He climbed what God put there. And what God has always put there is a symbol of sacrifice. He went ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot. <laughs> Come on now, say, when Jesus reached the spot. It's almost as if the God of the universe put a tree where it needed to be, put a short man where he needed to be, and put Jesus in the spot he needed to be. What did it cost Jesus to get to that spot? Well, he had to separate himself from equality with God. He had to take on himself the appearance of a man. He had to submit to death. He had to submit to death on the cross. And that's not to mention all of those other things like learning to walk and feed yourself and having diapers changed. The God of the universe. What did it cost him to get to that spot? It cost him more or less than Zacchaeus. It cost him more or less than Zacchaeus. <clears throat> there was a spot in your life where you met Jesus. Did it cost Jesus more or you more? Jesus. But when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. 
So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. When you take a pure sinner and he becomes obedient to the voice of God, something happens. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up. I want you to hear these words Jesus said. Zeke, he said to Zacchaeus, Come down. Get off your high horse. Get out of your own plans. Pin up your calf. You're going to do what I tell you to do. Zacchaeus did it immediately. And he said, Zacchaeus, stand up. Hitch yourself to this wagon. Low the whole way, no matter what it costs you. Our God calls us out of something and into something always. He never just calls us out. He never simply says, don't sin. He says, stop sinning and do something good with your hands. Amen. He is not a God of restriction. He is a God of freedom. If He says don't, it's because it would kill you to do it. Amen. So He says, don't do that. Instead, do this. Yes. But it's going to kill you to do that too. Right. It's going to kill you in a good way. You ever been laughing so hard? I mean... The kind we're going to split a rib and just said he's killing me. Jesus will kill you in a good way. He'll kill you in a way that brings life. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times. Four times. Four times is 400%, right? Numbers, the fifth chapter, seventh verse. It says, if you cheated anybody, you need to make restitution. What you stole from them, take that and add a fifth to it. That's 120%. And give that back. But Zacchaeus was not going to give the Lord an offering that didn't cost him anything. He picked the hardest thing in his life. He had been a tax collector and a wealthy man. He's used to receiving money, not giving it away. And that day, he became obedient to the Lord. This short man became a giant man in the Spirit. He went from pure sinner to purely obedient. Just by obeying Jesus. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Did Zacchaeus buy his salvation? When Zacchaeus became obedient to the Lord, he was saved. And having been saved, he participated in the sufferings of Christ. He put to death his flesh. He took up his cross and he carried it. This is all the Lord is asking for many of us. In him you were also, you won't see this, this comes from Colossians. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. I want to tell you that your obedience will cause a circumcision in your heart. The Word of God will separate your thoughts from His thoughts. Your flesh from spirit. Maybe even the marrow from your bones our joints and it will hurt and it will bring life this is how we know that the Lord is the Lord and that it, we're not simply following the latest chocolate doctrine I like chocolate so I'll eat chocolate 
How many of you would like to participate with the Lord? I'm not, not going to pass an offering plate. That'd be way too easy. I'm not asking for a check or a dollar amount. You're not about to hear a sermon that says in 2012, give $2,012. I've heard all of those. I think those men are liars. I think they're fishers of funds, charlatans. I'm going to tell you that if he has anything less than your whole life, then you don't have him. I'm going to tell you that 10% was to train you. It's like feeding somebody a bottle. He wants your whole life. He wants your time. He wants it all. We're not going to quote Queen here, but he wants it now. He wants it all, and he wants it now. How long are you going to make him wait? The bold message is the kingdom is here. It's preceded by the word repent, the kingdom is here. Turn from your ways and take up his. That is what the kingdom is. Amen. Stand to your feet. Wednesday night will be an uplifting message because Justin is an uplifting guy. Moved by the Holy Ghost. I want you to be moved by the Holy Ghost. I don't want you to be moved by emotion, guilt, human conviction. I want you to be moved by the power of God. I'm not asking you to do a thing that God is not asking you to do. I'm going to tell you, we're the only thing in all of creation that has the audacity to tell Him no. Or wait and we'll pray about it. If the Lord has told you to do something, waste no time. Waste no time. Can't give Him your life later if He's asking for it now. can't make good on something tomorrow that he's asking for today. It doesn't work that way. Today is the day of salvation. Today salvation came. Jesus.